I'd like to introduce Dr. Ghali. He's a board-certified pediatric dermatologist in general pediatrics and general dermatology. He serves on both the executive board and society for pediatric dermatology and on the executive committee of the section on dermatology for uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics. He is in private practice in Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and spends time as a clinical assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical School teaching pediatric dermatology. Dr. Ghali is co-director of Camp Brave Skin, a special camp benefiting children with chronic skin conditions, and he's reported to be the best pediatric dermatologist in Dallas. <laughs> yeah. My mom wrote that. <laughs> Don't you, the, the, the things that speakers hate are these introductions that the, you have us do, they're, they're crazy. It feels like, and honestly, I felt like my mom wrote that one. Uh, this, the second talk for this afternoon, hopefully you'll find it exciting. Uh, I think a job of a dermatologist sometimes is like MacGyver. You try to have to figure out what does this mean and you kind of piece it together. And uh, that's what our talk is really entitled, Skin Clues to Pediatric Systemic Disease. I think one of my colleagues, Dr. Jacoby, uh, which I don't know what she exactly talked on, gave the adult version of this and there's probably going to be a lot different than what you had at that particular uh, talk. I tried to, when I was creating this talk, I thought to myself, you know, how many diseases are there in pediderm and which ones do we focus on? So some of them are going to be very rare, some are going to be common, and I think are very important. But I kind of grouped them into, you know, skin and brain, kind of the neurocutaneous variety, uh, connective tissue disease, GI, gastrointestinal. And if we have time and we're doing well, there's a, a few miscellaneous ones, ones I call pseudo-malignancies. I really have no conflicts of interest for this portion of the talk. So then when I'm thinking about skin and brain or skin and spine or neurocutaneous, I then start to kind of come up and subcategorize that and ask myself, okay, what kind of spot am I looking at? And you know, usually in dermatology, you focus on color and you focus on distribution where the rash is and where the rash is not. And so for neurocutaneous, I kind of look at the color, and then lastly, we'll look at things that run in a line, the so-called blastoid formation. Okay, so what about light spots? Do we need to get the lights down, or is this okay for you guys? Down a little bit? I don't know if our AV can help us with getting the lights, because uh, this, this shows you a child, and so the, here's an infant presents to your office, and uh, the parents are concerned about a few of the white spots. So then in your differential diagnosis, you wonder, are the, you know, is it vitiligo, is it depigmented, is it really hypopigmented, maybe you get a woods lamp out or the black light and you can see that, you, and thank you for doing that with the lights, by the way, you can kind of take a look at them and see really, you know, they're, they're kind of hypo or depigmented and they're multiple ones. And you know, how many do you worry about? I usually worry when I see more than five or six, so we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. And if you saw this kid and they wanted to make it a test question, they may say, well, this child presents to your office with a history of seizures. And then you go, okay, these are the hypopigmented spots of tuber sclerosis. But keep in mind, a lot of kids can present with what's called mosaic forms, partial forms of the disease. So they may only show a couple of features and not the whole feature. Or you may see the white spots, like you see in these, in these slides behind me, but there is no seizure. So you have to go looking, and, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. So with white spots that are multiple, and usually in our clinic, when I see tuber sclerosis and white spots, they usually have 10 or more. 
but I know by definition it's different. What the book tells you is usually three or more you're supposed to be curious about the hypopigmented spots, but for me they usually tend to have more. So if they have three or more then I start you know, maybe see them back and follow up. I start looking for other features. Some of these other features may not appear till later. So we'll focus on some of the, those in our talk today, looking at some of the skin features, like the so-called fibrous forehead plaque or the angiofibromas, the chagrin patch that you sometimes will see on the back. But the one thing I wanted to keep in mind are the hypopigmented spots can be the earliest skin marker for tuberous sclerosis. If you have definitive tuberous sclerosis, you have two major features, or you have one major plus two minors, and those again, you'll go back to your handout and you can see those. So this is the so-called configuration. They don't always have to be oval-shaped or ash-leafed. Actually, really probably a quarter of those are those shaped. You can see lots of different ways. Solitary major criteria, if they have more of the confetti appearance of hypopigmentation, on the legs, that's considered to be a secondary or minor feature. And again, it's the earliest finding seen in the majority of patients. Can you have tuberous sclerosis without hypopigmented spots? The answer is yes, you certainly can. We have a few of those patients that had angiofibromas. You can't find the hypopigmented spots anywhere, and they'll have another major criteria like tubers in the, in the cortex. It's an autosomal dominant disorder, but usually family history is often negative because like NF in pediatrics, this is often a new mutation. So family history does not always give you the answer. Chromosomes 9 and 10 are involved in the triad that we always learned when we were in pediatrics was epilepsy or seizures, developmental delay, and angiofibromas. So this is what I typically see. If you look here, you can see a large area here on the back. You may call this a nevus depigmentosis, which really it looks exactly the same, but you're seeing multiple ones. And I'll use the word gut tape to kind of refer to how to some of the spots look. They look like little white spots. And most of the kids, again, usually have more like eight to 10, but three is the criteria for, you know, looking for other things. Okay, this is the forehead plaque of tuber sclerosis. And many of you may or may not have seen it. It's often confused with a Port Weinstein. So this kid was referred to our clinic because he had been lasered before by outside dermatologists and they wanted to know, you know if we would do laser. And actually, anytime you get a case like that, you always do what you normally do, start from scratch. Is this the correct diagnosis? So this was actually the, fi the fibrous plaque, which is a connective tissue, hamartoma. It's usually right on the forehead temple area. Sometimes it can extend into the scalp line. It blanches a little bit. It's a little thick. It kind of has this kind of kind of reddish, brownish, orangish appearance to it. And we now know that it is a continuous marker of CNS involvement. So more kids who have this are at risk for having CNS involvement with tuber sclerosis. And it's seen in about a, maybe a quarter of patients that, that, that uh, have tuber sclerosis. Angiofibromas, adenoma sebation, pretty much the same term. Another skin feature that you should be well aware of for tuber sclerosis. And I will tell you, it can present as young as two but typically, if you hold me down to it, it's our four to eight-year-olds where we start to see the angiofibromas. Here's the early way it looks. It almost can be confused with acne. It can have these little papular looks. It can be more tannish, and it can have more of the angio characteristic of, of it as well. And this shows you an older person where you can have larger lesions. Now, I will tell you off-label, I didn't put this in the talk, but we are now using some of the serolima, uh, so the, uh, the Rapimune, uh, off-label for some of these patients. That's compounded topically. Very, very expensive, but Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas is doing a study 
using it topically for angiofibromas. And it has been a very promising thing so far. We have three patients on it now. I hope to have follow-up on that uh, next time I'm here down the road. Now, what about mosaic, and what does that mean? I always think about a mosaic like the artwork, little pieces put together with a whole picture. But what we see sometimes in NF, which we'll talk about, and tuberous sclerosis, is that some kids will have this unilateral distribution only on one side. Maybe it's the hypopigmented macules, and maybe it's the angiofibromas. It's usually the angiofibromas. So some people say this is a segmental mosaic form of tuberous sclerosis, and these kids do not have the full-fledged uh, criteria to meet for tuberous sclerosis. But, and the question remains, what about their kids? What about down the road? What is the risk? And that's very, very difficult sometimes to get the exact answer. Some people do chromosome testing, but I don't think we truly, truly know what the exact risk for these patients who have mosaic tuberous sclerosis. I'll get my uh, Luke Skywalker out here and show you here. Here's the segmental distribution of the angiofibromas seen on this child who had ipsilateral uh, angiofibromas uh, as well. Okay, now we move to cafe spots. So you're taking an exam, they say, how many cafe spots do you need to have for neurofibromatosis? And the answer is sometimes five or six, and it's five millimeters or greater if it's a child. If it's a teenager above, then they, you know, uh, they, they tell you it can be a different dimension of more like 15 millimeters or one and a half centimeters. Same thing holds true. Most kids who have neurofibromatosis don't just have five or six, they have a ton. I mean, too many to count. TNTC, what we call it in our clinic, too numerous to count. And this kid has a ton of cafe spots over the body and does have neurofibromatosis. Here are the NF1 major criteria. So let's focus on the skin, the ones to be familiar with. Six or more cafe LA spots. So what if they come to your clinic and they got four? or they got five. You know, what do you do for those patients? We tend to see them back annually. We check. I think a good screening tool for those kids that are borderline, and we have a great pediatric ophthalmologist in our area, is to look for leash nodules. That can be sometimes a screening exam, non-invasive. Do you do MRIs on all these patients? Depends on the neurologist. Some of the neurologists say no. Some of them say yes. It's not part of our standard treatment that we do in our office. We rely on the neurologist and they make the call. I think they're leading toward doing more MRIs these days, at least at Dallas and at Cook Children's in our respective uh, areas. So neurofibromas and axillary or inguinal freckling is also an important clue. Uh, light brown areas can appear anywhere on the skin. And keep in mind, a lot of uh, patients, 10%, you know, especially some of the darker skin types, can have cafe LA macules or patches and those be fine. When do you worry? We talked about that, greater than five and greater than five millimeters in kids, greater than five and greater than one and a half centimeters there. Now here's an example of a segmental patch right in here, followed by multiple other areas and then neurofibromas as well. And you can also see this in neurofibromatosis II, Bakun Albright, Blooms. There's a lot of different diseases that can be associated with cafe au lait, but for the purposes of this talk, we'll focus on NF. Now what about this slide? It talks about a possible triad or an association. Is it real or is it not real? A lot of the early literature looked at this triad that we'll talk about and said, yes, there's a definitely increased risk. And there's some newer information says that maybe it's not as high as we think. But I will tell you, if you have a child that's got multiple cafe spots, has NF, and has multiple JXGs, you know, more than three or four of these, then there may be a possibility of an increased risk of leukemia. And it's usually of the CML variety. 
So what do you do for these kids? Well, we check CBCs on them every six months or so, make sure they have good follow-up with primary care with us. But that number may actually be lower than what the recent studies show. But it's a possible association. Just like we talked about with uh, tuber sclerosis, and we have these mosaic or segmental portions, the same holds true with NF. So what do you tell this family? They come in, they got this almost giant patch on the, on, the, on the flank or armpit with other cafes within it. And this terminology is so confusing. Some people call it segmental NF. Some people call it giant speckled lentiginous nevus. Some people just call it segmental cafe spots. It's got a lot of different terminology. We used to call it type 5 NF when I was in residency. But it's a post-zygotic mutation. And it, it really it's just unilateral. So it doesn't cross the midline area. So Again, we're not sure, because there are not a lot of these to collect on follow-up, what is their risk of passing it on to uh, their future generation? We, I don't think we know. I'm some, some worried about those patients, so we follow them. What I'm not worried about are these kids. So if you get cafe spots, you know, isolated, solitary, but not with a whole bunch of what I call satellite other cafes, these kids are actually okay. And most of these kids do pretty well. And so we just kind of watch those. Okay, now we're skill, skin, and brain, and now let's look at large congenital nevi, or the so-called giant nevi, which is defined as a nevus greater than 20 centimeters in an adult patient. And the thing that we want to keep in mind is that the lifetime risk is probably somewhere between 5 to 15 percent, and we're really focusing on the giant nevus. A lot of the, the information from NYU, very fascinating, looking back at small and medium nevi, and saying, well, the risks for those are about 1% to 2%, maybe even lower than that, and maybe not much different than an acquired nevus. So our focus is on the giant nevus. And, you know, the melanomas that do develop within uh, uh, congenital nevi, you know, they account for a, a third of the preperibital melanomas are within the giant-type nevi. So these are the kids that we watch. We see them back every three to four months. The question is, is when you see a child like this, what kind of workup do you do? Typically, we will do MRI of the brain and MRI of the spine. So we, we do both of those looking for neurocutaneous melanosis. What about satellite nevi? The latest literature and what we've seen in our own patient population is there's no malignancy within the satellites. We don't ignore them. We do address the satellites in that if they look atypical, then yes, we'll biopsy them. But almost always, when you see multiple nevi or satellite nevi, you have to wonder where the giant nevus is. And for this kid, you can see it's on the head. It's on the scalp. Uh, leptal meningeal melanosis, or CNN melanomas, melanosis, is a, an association of having the melanin in the skin and in the brain. You know, both ectodermal origin, very similar structures when they're forming in a, in a child. Location, location, location is important. So the ones that require more imaging, the ones that we're more worried about, are the ones on the scalp and the ones that occur on the midline of the spinal canal area. Uh, not everybody is symptomatic. If you look, up to one-third of kids are asymptomatic. It's important to know because it may affect whether a family is wanting to look at surgery or not surgery. In other words, if you remove a giant nevus in the body and the family feels, oh, relieved that they're removing them, then how to, what happens because it's still in the brain? So they may not want to remove the skin knowing that it really is somewhere else and they're not taking their risk to zero because that's what a lot of parents want. How can I take the risk to zero? And I'm like, that's very, very... Uh, hard to do. If they do have involvement of the brain, they do tend to have a more poor prognosis. We have several kids in our clinic with 
CNS melanosis, and they do have seizures and developmental delay, and they usually are followed very close by neurology and uh, neurosurgery, and they tend to get MRIs annually. What about this case? Taught me a lot. And that is, so you see this kid, and yes, they have a Mongolian spot on the back, but they got multiple brown nevi. And so we, do, we did a, a test, and so I had just gone to a talk by another pediderm that, that uh, trained me, and it was like, if you see multiple satellites, you gotta always wonder, where is the mothership? Where is the giant nevus located? Well, the, the MRI of the brain and the spinal cord was negative, but when we did a follow-up one, we started seeing it light up in the spine. Why it wasn't apparent at, earlier in the MRI, I have no idea, because most people, when the MRI is negative, they don't tend to keep repeating MRIs, but for some reason we did in this particular child, maybe because he was symptomatic, he was having some problems with his coordination in his feet. And so if you see a kid with multiple medium nevi, you have to watch them closely. You have to wonder, is the primary somewhere in the brain or spinal cord? And this kid was, a, was a, an amazing teaching case for us, but unfortunately the child passed. Case number four looks at skin and brain. So looking at this and asking the question, now we're moving to red. So we did white, we did brown, and now we're to red. And so red makes me think vascular. And when you think vascular, you think hemangioma or you think Port Weinstein. In this particular case, for those of you that don't see a lot of vascular lesions, it may look like a Port Weinstein to you. And it may be something that you're thinking of like Sturge Weber. However, this is actually called a flat telangiectatic hemangioma. And they usually don't fully develop. They don't become very, very thick. But notice it's very segmental over the so-called V1 distribution, kind of trigeminal distribution. This is what we worry about, a syndrome called FACES, P-H-A-C-E-S. It's going to be all in your handout again, and it involves brain malformations, uh, hemangiomas, thin or thick, arterial anomalies of the neck or of the brain, coarctation of the heart, eye abnormalities, sternal cleft, or supraumbilical raphe. It is a spectrum of disease. So this is the worst case scenario. This is one of the first kids we had that had it. And actually, this was pre-propranolol. So this is before you might hear a lot of information about using propranolol for hemangiomas, which we have now done close to 45 or 50 patients. This was pre-propranolol. So this is, we were using oral steroids and actually vincristine, which probably not used as much. This is the lesser end of the spectrum. So this kid has a flat hemangioma, which on the picture, I'm sorry, it looks like a hemangioma. I mean, it looks like a port wine, but it's not. And this is the supraumbilical raffae that you can see extending from above the umbilicus to the chest. Looks like, a, looks like a scar. And this kid did very well, really didn't need any treatment, didn't even need laser. The, the hemangioma faded uh, quite well. And so you have to do a workup. You know, EKG, you have to do an echo, you have to get a good eye exam, you have to do an MRI. So this is a skin marker, segmental vascular, could mean another disease. Sturge Weber, okay, that's the one we're probably more familiar with, but actually I see more of facies than I do of Sturge Weber. And that is where you have V1 dermal plexus involvement of the choroids and the meninges of the vascular malformation, usually a so-called capillary malformation or Port Weinstein. And this is an example, this is a kid that we've lasered uh, that did well, but I will tell you that it comes back and you have to laser these kids uh, with touch-ups every year or so. So another condition where you have a vascular process, you can have glaucoma involved in these kids, and you can have uh, involvement of the brain. So we've talked about some of these vascular things that involve the brain, and now I kind of want to get into lumps and bumps, some with vascular overlying with it too. So 
This kid on the left has got kind of a hemangioma that's flat on the gluteal area with something called a pseudotel, which looks like a giant skin tag. And this kid on the right has a port wine stain and some hair that's a little bit thicker, which we'll talk about, the so-called hair collar sign. So I will give you the one that we see the most. That is the midline nasal dermoid. And I don't want you to confuse that with the dermoid that you see right over here on the lateral eyebrow of little kids. Sometimes they'll get a dermoid cyst here that requires no imaging, can be electively removed if they want to, can leave it alone. That's on the lateral eyebrow. That's the most common site for a dermoid cyst. Second would probably be the scalp. And sometimes you can image those, sometimes you don't if you're sure, but a lot of times they're imaged. But the one that definitely requires imaging is right here. Anywhere from the glabella to the tip of the nose, it can be a little hole, can be a tuft of hair that comes out as well from it, or it can be a little pit. So you can see the sinus at the glabella, and below, I don't know if you're in the back, you can see there's a tiny little pit. And so uh, since there can be uh, extension of infection, possibly from this up into the brain, and 25% of these are at risk, MRI is important, and you can refer it to your surgical subspecialist, usually a plastics, uh, a neurosurge, depending if there's a connection or not, or ENT. Now, cranial dysraphism is a big bucket term, and so a lot of things fall under cranial dysraphism. And what dysraphism is, is things have not closed Think about it, the door's not fully closed, things get open, things form within that little crack in the skin, and that's when you have a connection to the brain. The one that we tend to see the most is probably the cephalocele, the, uh, is probably the most common uh, of those. And we also see this thing called heterotopic or atretic uh, encephalocele, where it really is not fully a true encephalocele, but it's kind of just like other brain tissue in there. If something changes. If the parent comes up to you and says, okay, I got this big knot on the head, and when the kid's crying, it bulges out, and when they're calm, it goes down, and when they lay down, it changes a lot, and it's not vascular appearing, then you need to worry about a connection to the brain, and that obviously is going to require you to do an MRI. You can try doing the ultrasound, but I will tell you, the way those, you've seen the radiology reports, they're always hedging. They're like, could be, maybe, recommend MRI. <laughs> That's what they always say. At least they do at our clinic. So I always just go ahead and do the MRI to get a more definitive thing. What should you look for when you're worried about a connection of something underlying the brain? Look for like an overlying port wine stain. Also look for this tuft of hair that we'll talk about or hair collar sign. So a hair collar sign, it's usually dry hair, coarse hair, darker hair and longer hair. And it can be around normally things like aplasia cutis. And I really don't worry if it's a small aplasia cutis, that small little scar that happens on the scalp because uh, th the skin didn't fully form in the area and the parents always think it was from the OB or from, you know, not like they have enough to worry about already, but a little small area. That is, you know, kind of without skin forming completely. No worries about that. When they have a hair collar plus a port wine, which is the picture I showed you, and it's flat, then it's ectopic brain tissue. But if there's no connection, I'm really not that worried. I'm not super worried about those. Some parents want them removed. They can have it removed. But it's really ectopic brain tissue. The only reason we know it's ectopic brain tissue is because for some of those that have had a negative MRI, so any biopsy you want to do is after MRI, <laughs> not, not before. And so after MRI, when you do a biopsy, you can, they'll tell you it's heterotopic meningeal tissue. If they have an area that is a big nodule, then it tends to be in our clinic, usually an encephalocele and then sometimes a meningocele. If you don't remember anything about today's talk, remember, when in doubt, get an MRI, and that'll help you. Now, I ended up doing an MRI on this kid on the upper left that had multiple aplasia cutis that run in a line with a thick hair collar sign. 
I went ahead and did it and it was negative. By definition, did I have to? Probably not. This one, even though it's not that impressive, you can see that large port wine stain in this tuft of hair. And I didn't really feel a big knot, so this MRI was negative, and we're just, we're just watching, but it's probably that heterotopic brain tissue, which we're not worried because there's no connection. There's this article uh, that I put in there, it'll be in your handout, that asks the question, do we, are we imaging too much? When should we image? What are some good guidelines for imaging? And their thing was that if you've got a bump and you're pretty confident you know what it is, which we not always are, but it's right in this area, kind of in the front of my head, then uh, you don't have to necessarily image. If it's in the crown, it's vertex, it's questionable. If it's caudal in this area right in here, then they recommend imaging. And I will also add to it, if it's a big aplasia cutis, if it's a large hair collar sign, or my gut, do you all ever feel like your gut tells you what to do sometimes? If your gut doesn't feel good about the, the case, then image it because then you're never going to be blamed for imaging it. The only thing the parents are going to complain about, depending on where you image it at, is does the kid have to be sedated? Do they have to be put to sleep? And so if you have a good children's facility to do it at, you're safe, you're okay. And most kids that are not symptomatic, we wait till they're about three months to four months of age when it is quote unquote safe. Now let's switch gears to the spine. We talked about large nevi in the spine, but let's look at spinal dysraphism. So again, skin clues to another disease or another thing, and that's why uh, I kind of lumped it in here. Usually the one that we worry about is the lipoma. The lipoma are big dimples, but lipoma and the pseudotel or hemangiomas, and I'll show you some pictures. So this is the pseudotel up at the upper right, and this is a big sinus on the lower one here. I'll get my ob one Kenobi. There we go. So right in that area. I shouldn't do any Star Wars analogies. I'll, I'll get really off, off topic here. But these things, so look for gluteal cleft deviation. So let me show you that. So the, the bottom should be going up here. And look, it goes whoop, goes way over onto this side. This doesn't show it as much because it's, it's higher up. But this is what you're looking for right in here. Both of these cases, lipoma. So both of these cases had to see neurosurgery to have the lipoma removed because we're worried about tethered cord. So if you have something holding the spine, the spine's supposed to grow from kind of south to north, and you're holding it and you're shearing it and the nerves tear, that's tethered cord and that is not good. So that's something that needs to be referred and imaged again again. When in doubt, image. Now let's go to case number six, skin and brain again. Blashcoid. So things that look like somebody took a paintbrush and just went like that. So the three things that I think to be aware of and some of them are rare. Gold syndrome is rare. Epidermal nevus syndrome is not as rare as you think. And incontinentia pigmenti. So we'll kind of highlight this real, this real quick. With epidermal nevi, typically to have the syndrome, not always, they usually have facial involvement. They usually have quite a bit of their body surface involved as well. Can you have the syndrome and it only be unilateral? Yes, we've seen some of those in our clinic. But typically it is bilateral. And they sometimes get hemihypertrophy of the face, which is shown on this kid on the upper uh, uh, photo here, where his left side of his face is larger than the right. But most people who have the large epidermal nevi on the face and the body, the face, like we saw with this fibrous plaque and tuberous sclerosis, to me means they have an increased risk of CNS involvement when it's on the face. As far as incontinentia pigmenti, mainly females that have that X-link dominant for those of you like, you know, the, the science behind things, it's a, it's a nemo gene. 
And the thing to know about that is it occurs in stages. So when you first see it, and let's say the kid's really, really young in the first few weeks, and it kind of has this eosinophilic spongiosis under the microscope, then what you're looking are at papules, but mainly vesicles that run in a line. Oftentimes it's referred over for possible herpes simplex or shingles. They're not sure if it's one of those things, and so that's what it's confused with. As you become a little bit older, now we're into the two-month age and more, it becomes more warty or more verrucous. And again, it shows you how verrucous it can appear over time. And then lastly, you get into the hyperpigmented stage, which is shown here, which can occur both on the trunk as well as the arms and the legs. And then lastly, you have the hypopigmented stage, which usually shows up when they're much, much older. And that's what some people look for when they look to see if mom's a carrier, or if mom had it mildly. You can look at their legs and you may wood's lamp uh, a mom of a child who has IP. Uh, it's important, very important to get a good eye exam on these patients. The blindness is also associated with uh, IP. Uh, the teeth is an important exam, not until they get older, but you may look at the parent because they may have some missing teeth or some misshapen teeth as well. And then some of these kids do have seizures, they do have tumors, and they do have developmental delays. So it's another association of the skin and the brain. Okay, and I'm going to skip the GOLT syndrome because it's for, for times. Now, another topic that's near and dear to me is connective tissue disease. And uh, really, you know, I think Dr. Jacoby spoke earlier. She's been a big help in our area for sharing some of our, our kids that have a lot of these involvement of lupus and dermatomyositis and morphine and so forth. So it's nice having her around as well as Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. So for these patients, it's very common to work with the rheumatologist as well. And so for those of you that are around a pediatric rheumatologist and you get these type of cases, it's harder to get an appointment with a pediatric rheumatologist than it is a dermatologist. There are very few of them. And so in your particular area, this is somebody you'll need to know if you get one of these kind of cases that we're gonna go through next. And that brings us to connective tissue disease. And I'm gonna just make sure we're doing good on, our, on, on time. So as far as this case, so somebody comes in with facial and pardon me, an extremity rash, and a lot of times they'll have associated fatigue. So this may be a girl who's you know kind of tired and is not quite making it on the soccer field. She's getting a little bit uh, you know tired getting out of a chair, and things go through your mind. You know you could show this picture and it could be polymorphous light eruption and have nothing to do with the history. It could be a phototoxic eruption. Your differential diagnosis should be broad, but Definitely dermatomyositis and definitely lupus belong in the differential as long as, as long as those others. We see a lot of dermatomyositis in our clinic, and I mean a lot. And if you go look, and you'll, you'll probably see it in your patients. The characteristic findings are the heliotrope rash, sometimes eyelid edema, Gotrans papules. We'll talk about findings in the mouth and the nail folds that have dilated capillaries that you can also see in other connective tissue diseases. The traditional characteristics are, are proximal muscle weakness, elevated muscle enzymes, myopathic changes, and abnormal muscle biopsy findings. I can tell you that the pediatric rheumatologists now are doing less EMG, and a lot of them are going straight to MRI. And so they can see a lot of changes in signals with an MRI, and that's how they're making the diagnosis, which for the kid's sake is nice because the biopsy was kind of painful. Uh, and the criteria were expanded in 2002 to also con uh, consider calcinosis as a clue, especially for pediatric juvenile dermatomyositis, where calcinosis is more common in untreated or lately detected dermatomyositis patients than the adult counterpart. 
Okay, so heliotrope rash, facial eyelids can look red, can look purple, can spare sometimes the nasolabial areas, and then you can have dilated nail folds or capillary drop-off around the cuticles as well. All very important. Please do not depend on muscle weakness. If your stomach tells you it looks like dermatomyositis, then make the diagnosis. The problem that you may run into is the problem that I run into, and that is you may do the labs, and the labs are totally negative. The CPK is normal, the aldolase is normal, uh, the kid's not having that much muscle weakness, maybe, maybe not, and so how do you make the diagnosis? You see it clinically, and then you look to, well, where do I biopsy? Because sometimes it waxes and wanes. If your body, if your, your gut tells you that it's dermatomyositis, at least continue to watch these patients closely because like the adult counterpart, there are a ton of kids that have the amyopathic form where we've seen them, we're worried about dermatomyositis, a year or two down the road, they come in and they have the muscle weakness or ones that we've referred on and that we've kept follow-up with have something. Uh, I think the earliest sign is not the heliotrope rash in kids, it's actually Gotrin's papules. And if you look very closely, this is a three-year-old that came in for, quote, warts. And I don't know if you can see the pictures in the back, it may be a little bright, but these are classic Gotrin's papules along the pericuticle peri area in the knuckles, the DIP and the MCP. And this was another kid, 18 months old, that I'm watching closely because I'm worried and I saw a little capillary drop-off. But if you do testing on these kids, they're often negative. And what happens if you uh, do a biopsy of one of these areas, which I did with Dr. Cockrell, one of my friends, and said, it looks like dermatomyositis. I'm biopsying a Gotrin's papule. It doesn't show you what you would expect with interface dermatitis with a connective tissue disease. Rather, it looks like lichen planus. So I did a literature search, and behold, it's been described. If you biopsy Gotrin's papules, which I don't recommend you do, then it, looks, it doesn't look like that. It looks more like lichen planus. So you may be stuck sometimes trying to get him into the rheumatologist doing that. Uh, about 12 years ago, and you know, I grew up in a, in a family where my brother was an oral surgeon, my dad is a dentist, and so I was always fascinated on skin and mouth. And so we had these patients that when I was at UNC Chapel Hill, anytime they had a connective tissue disease, I would look in their mouth, and mainly for lupus to see if they had ulcers, but I noticed, wow, especially the dermatomyositis patients, if you look at this picture here, it has striking similarity to the nails. You know, the border of the nails, for those of you that use the dermatoscope to see the dilated capillaries. And sure enough, there was an article in the 60s that reported that, but predated PubMed, and we did more of a uh, article ourselves when I was at UNC, go Tar Heels, right? Uh, looking at that and saying that the gingival telangiectasias are quite similar to what you see on the nail folds. And the same thing holds true. If disease is more active, you tend to see them more. Uh, they're not really symptomatic. They weren't complaining of gingival bleeding, but it correlates with disease activity and is not specific to dermatomyositis like the nail folds. We also saw it in patients that had lupus as well as scleroderma. I don't know if you can see it there. Kind of hugs the little border right in these areas. And if you have a dermatoscope, then you can see they really do look strikingly similar to the nails. So I mentioned, don't hang your hat on muscle weakness. It's an important pearl for today that you can see the myositis or the amyopathic form that was taught to me at Southwestern by Dr. Sontheimer many years ago, and that is follow-up is important for these kids. So if it looks to you that they may have it, make sure you see them back even though the testing is negative. And again, the key differences, knock on wood with kids, usually not associated with malignancy like the adult form, 
more calcinosis, but usually in, in people who are treated lately, they'll get the calcinosis on the, on the elbows. And I think the amyopathic form, it says a bit more common in adults, but I think it's just underdiagnosed in kids because I don't think a lot of the primary cares uh, recognize it. Next, we'll move to case number eight. Thank you for your patience. So looking here, we see a big knot on the chin. We see something that looks kind of like tinea or granuloma annulari. We see this uh, child here on the bottom left that's got these discoid lesions. And then we have this other child here that's got a red rash with sparing of the nasolabial fold. This brings us to lupus. And so lupus can present all like that within, within the pediatrics. So you need to be familiar with neonatal lupus. You need to be very familiar with some of the variants. Uh, most of our kids don't come in with fever, fatigue, and multi-system involvement. They just come in with a rash, with a wide differential diagnosis that you have to rule out, and then you start looking for something. Maybe the ANA is positive. Uh, maybe they have lesions in their mouth. And so these are the criteria for systemic lupus. You're familiar with the lab work because you see more of this in the adult population. I will tell you that the sparing of the nasal bridge is typically how we see it. And this is a common case of SLE that we will see and in, in our, in our kids right in here. Now the discoid is more common than SLE, at least in our clinic. And we have to watch these discoid kids because there's a percentage of those that can go on to have systemic lupus as well. And this can look like tinea in a little kid. It can look like granuloma annulari. It's more tricky with hyperpigmented skin. And you can see it can leave a lot of hyperpigmentation on this kid. And I, you know, this was a kid that had it five years, six years ago, and then came back and see me and had this hyperpigmentation that I swore was fixed drug eruption. Didn't it kind of look like it? Biopsied it a couple times. Uh, I see Phil in the, in the audience. I had Melissa Costner, my good old buddy, take a look. And she looked at the pathology with me and said, nope, it's still discoid lupus. And so this kid's on Plaquenil and topicals. And she's doing, she's doing okay. It's starting to uh, quiet down. And then the other type of lupus that we see is lupus profundus. And again, I have great resources in my areas for, for second opinions to help me with these because it's not common for these kids to get this. This is that lupus paniculitis that's real deep. And so this kid's on methotrexate and Plaquenil. Steroids worked. It's a very, very difficult case uh, of the deep tissue. And a lot of times it leaves this lipodystrophy. You can see this is a sunken area that's developed. And we hope that it burns out and you know, we can keep it to a minimum then maybe some type of cos cosmetic procedure can be done to help this kid down the road. Very, very challenging cases. Now, the one that we see probably in our clinic, I would say about maybe five, six times a year, is neonatal lupus. And it's a really underdiagnosed. And what happens, it can present a lot of different ways. Usually, if you get a call from a pediatrician that says, I'm just checking, I got a kid with tinea capitis, and they're about, oh, three weeks old, what dose of griseofulvin should I use? Light bulb goes off, it may not be tinea capitis, it's neonatal lupus. And I can't tell you how many times we get that call and I go, that's going to be neonatal lupus. And we'll have a little wager with the, with the nurses and usually it's, if it's right, I win. If it's wrong, I owe the money. So this is the raccoon eye on the bottom and then, uh, the, or the mass sign and you can see some of the discoid lesions as well. Look how it can present a lot different. Discoid here, this is the raccoon or mass sign and two different kids. And right here, and I, another pearl, uh, dark skin can trick you because you may look at this picture on the far right and you may be so struck by the hypopigmentation that you're thinking, oh, it's piebaldism, it's vitiligo, it's nevus depigmentosis. Really, you have to ask yourself, what was the primary disease 
that gave that hypopigmentation. And it was lupus in this particular kid. And don't depend on the history from mom because oftentimes mom has no idea that she carries a positive ANA. She could have lupus. She could have mixed tissue connective disease. All these things can give you a neonatal lupus-like picture. Knock on wood that only 10% of patients who have skin findings also have the heart findings. So when I was a general pediatrician and working in the neonatal intensive care unit, they used to harp on us when I was at Southwestern, and that is any kid that has congenital heart block has lupus until proven otherwise. And so that's the thing that we worry about. These kids deserve a good cardiac workup, and they also deserve a good rheumatologic workup for the mom. In case she doesn't know, the OB has to be, uh, also know that there may be high risk future for the pregnancy. What we tend to see is if one child is born to a mom with, with this that has neonatal lupus and has skin only, that the rest of the offspring tend to follow the same route. Skin only, not heart. Knock on wood again. So just keep in mind, anemia, uh, uh, increased liver transaminases are also important. And you can go back and you can see this in your handout if you have that. If you have a kid that presents to you after six months and you still think it may be neonatal lupus, the labs are often negative. And I will tell you that. So uh, do you have to treat it? Nope. You can wait for it to go away. You can use a low steroid, medium steroid, off-label calcineurin inhibitor. But the biggest thing to remember is the cardiology consult for these kids as well because they can have a third-degree heart block among other types. These two kids, I strongly suspect, had lupus, even though their tests were negative because one late sign are these telangiectasias, which, which typically resolve but don't always, that you can pulse die or leave alone. And on the right, this kid had punctate uh, atrophy all, the, all over the area. ANA was negative. Mom's ANA was positive. And so we think that this kid probably had lupus, but not absolutely. Chronic hives. Woo, that's a good way to end the day, right? You, don't, you, don't you, when you see that on your little schedule and they go, chronic urticaria, you're like, oh, mama mia. What am I going to do with this, right? Same thing with kids, right? Is you're like, oh, it's going to be idiopathic, it's chronic, I'll give them antihistamines, they've already seen the allergist, what do I do? So the, the, one, the couple of the diagnoses I don't want to miss when I think of kids is I want to know, do they have a fever and do they have swollen joints and have they recently taken an antibiotic? You know, I want to ask all those questions. So this is an, an example of a kid that's got hives but they were wearing pants, right? So they come in, they show your shirt, and so if you don't do a complete physical exam, you may miss that knee. That is not a normal knee. That is a big knee. Did mom tell you that? No. Said the kid was absolutely fine, no problems. But when you undress him, you're like, wow, that knee looks a bit swollen. So this is juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So when you have uh, urticaria, and urticaria usually is not acute, this is a long time, Sometimes they'll have a fever, then the urticaria appears. It's got these weird borders, it comes and goes, and they oftentimes, will, but not always, have fever associated with it. Do a good joint exam on those kids. Make sure it's not JRA. And so there's several different types. Uh, we typically see the systemic onset and an ANA rheumatoid factors, CBC, SED rate, and a good pediatric rheumatologist or primary care provider that can help you with that. Let me just double check our time, and I think we're doing pretty good. So what about now, we've talked about skin and brain, we've now moved on to different uh, subjects. Uh, now I want to look at gastrointestinal, so skin and the gut. 
I ain't talking about Accutane, okay? <laughs> so people, I, don't, I don't think that's a real associationist. I hope it's not. Has anybody got a letter, by the way, from their, about, I want records of your, you know, blah, blah, blah. Phil, you got one? I got one, too, for the first time. Uh, it's for prescription from 11 years ago that, that I wrote. So, you know, I know a lot of times when they see GI and skin, the parents are always asking about that. But what I want to focus on today I will talk about inflammatory bowel disease in a different presentation in Aquadermatitis Enteropathica. So something that doesn't itch, but the kid looks kind of puny, it kind of looks like subderm, kind of looks like psoriasis, and they got nail dystrophy, you need to start thinking about what we call nutritional deficiency dermatoses. So if you want to separate it into Aquadermatitis Enteropathica or zinc deficiency, that's great. If you want to think along broad terms and say, it's a nutritional deficiency dermatosis, then you can do that, and then you can group it under a lot of different diseases. But this is the classic acrodermatitis enteropathica. Now what's changed about it in the last four to five years in our clinic is that we typically saw it associated with those kids that were adopted overseas that were in an orphanage, and they had poor intake, and then they would come in, they would be, they would be deficient in zinc, we would supplement them, and they would do well. The other scenario that I saw maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago was when I was a PEDS resident and those patients would come in and it was iatrogenic because we didn't supplement enough zinc in the preemies because they had a higher metabolic demand and they would get the zinc deficiency or acrodermatitis enteropathica. Now what we're seeing in the last four years is something totally different. These are patients who are usually born to mothers who are breastfeeding and we're taught that breastfeeding is great because breastfeeding uh, contains something called picolinic acid. It's a zinc binder and it's supposed to, you know, be good. But what we've now found out, there are certain moms, believe it or not, who have breast milk low in zinc, which is odd, you know. So I never knew that existed until about four or five years ago. And there's actually a place in Colorado where you can send the breast milk off and they can test it and tell you that, yes, it's deficient in zinc. You supplement them and then they get better. So the labs you're going to check are obviously the serum zinc. You can look for a low alkphos, which will come back before your zinc level. And when you see a low alkphos, usually means that the zinc is also going to be low as well. And these kids are not necessarily going to come in with irritability and failure to thrive like the scenario I described to you from the orphanage. But they may just come in with this bad rash, maybe slightly puny, but they look okay. I mean, they're pretty, pretty good-sized kids. They're not emaciated or anything. And you can see nice response. So it oftentimes looks like psoriasis in the diaper area. You can see the similarity to it. So if you see something that looks like that, that doesn't respond to your topical fare, in the back of your mind, look around the mouth, look at the face, look at the nails, and look at the corner of the eyelids because they sometimes get a blepharitis and think zinc deficiency in those patients. And this was the orphanage one that I would see more and more of. These kids typically did look puny and they were far more irritable than our breastfed patients. And this was just due to uh, poor diet. Case number 11. This one was tricky. So this kid comes in. Uh, he's aut mildly autistic, so you're not going to get a lot of history. And he came in with this nodule on his right cheek that I'll show you right here. Right in that area. Kind of right there. And so it was kind of hard, tender to touch. And finally, and it would respond to steroids when we would try to use oral steroids. And we finally said, okay, we're going to do a biopsy. And it came back as kind of like nonspecific granulomatous due cultures for infection, which we did. Nothing grew out. And we kind of just watched it. And one day he just came in and his lips were just suddenly swollen. I mean, just puffy out. His tongue was swollen. And he was talking like that. And I was like, wow, what is going on? 
And so that kind of put me in a different category of something called granulomatous chelitis. And since then, I've seen one other kid with this, and I know it's rare. So in today's talk, this is on the rare side. But the goal of this talk is to think skin could mean something else. And so if you see this, you think something else. So when I saw this kid and it was like this, and he, I said, okay, I'm going to guaiac his stool because Crohn's disease is important to differential diagnosis. Well, the stool guaiac was negative. And he wouldn't have any stomach complaints and nothing. So I called one of my uh, GI doctors and said, could you please scope him? And he's like, well, I'll do it because it's you, but it doesn't sound like the kid needs to be scoped. They scope him, lo and behold, full of Crohn's disease. And so again, what this talk is meant to say is not, yeah, I did a good job on this case. That's not the point. Point is, if your gut tells you that you think something else is going on, and even though they're not showing that, then you need to do the testing. You need to do the workup. We owe it to our patients not to give up. And so this kid was especially important to rule out, had Crohn's disease, went on one of the biologics, and everything went away, and he did really, really well. I'll leave you with these two kind of miscellaneous ones. And that is this, that sometimes things can look vascular or red or hemorrhagic, and they're not. Or they can look kind of scaly, and you're not sure, but they're not scabies. And this is an example of what I call one of the great masqueraders. And it's not syphilis, which is another good masquerader. <laughs> that always shows up for every... Have you ever been to one of those... Some of y'all might have trained with some of the derm residents. Syphilis is in every differential diagnosis <laughs> there is. <laughs> well, I throw histiocytosis in there sometimes because a lot of things can be histiocytosis. So if you have a kid with a diaper eruption that doesn't clear, that looks like superficial erosions, hugging the inguinal area, think histiocytosis. They get this crusting or scaling or scabbiness to their scalp. Look for a little hemorrhage. And always don't depend on them having this failure to thrive or falling off the growth curve and being sick. And so sometimes, I remember when I was a derm resident at UNC, there was a guy, Joe David Fine, and he wouldn't let me ask one question to the patient. He'd give me 30 seconds. He'd open the door. He goes, okay, look at it, and that's it. And he'd close the door, and he goes, what do you think it is? And I, got, and I would come up with a differential diagnosis. I thought he was a nut when he did that to me. But what it taught me is to think without history, then put the history together. So I'm not saying do that to your patients because you'll get blogged on. <laughs> you'll be on one of those websites. You didn't spend any time with me. It's going too fast. But what it teaches you is to really, really see if your history and your physical match up. Because some of these kids were not falling off the growth curve, and they were doing actually fine. It was otherwise healthy. So on test questions, they look sick. On real life, you may see them before they develop that. Scabs in the central area is important with histiocytosis. Inguinal creases, it loves to go right into the inguinal area. This is a biopsy diagnosis. So my other pearl, along with the MRI, if you're in doubt, is if you got something and you don't know what it is, and you know how it can just horrendously slow your clinic up to do a biopsy, it does it in my clinic as well as your clinic, if your gut tells you that you need to do a biopsy, do it. Because you're, I think that's an important thing. Because you can't make this diagnosis without that. And this shows you some of the erosive forms of histiocytosis. I think of histiocytosis as a pseudo-malignancy-like. It can affect the skin, the liver, the bones. It can go to other portions of the body. It can give lytic lesions. And it's treated aggressively with chemotherapy for those patients that have systemic involvement. You can look for these symptoms, but don't depend on them. Just like the kid with dermatomyositis that may not come in with weakness, but you suspect it, you have to follow these kids closely. You know, some people don't use the word congenital self-healing histiocytosis. 
They say, nope, that was a term you may see. They just call it histiocytosis, and if it goes away, then it goes away. Uh, this was the classic type. I don't see this type as much. This is the hemorrhagic, scaly type presentation that can look like subderm, and skin lesions are clinically and pathologically indistinguishable. So you cannot tell whether they have systemic involvement or not, so you've got to do lab work, and you have to refer to your pediatric hemonc doctor to help you with these patients. This kid actually had systemic involvement, and all his skin cleared up when he went on uh, vincristine and, I think, Aracy. Last one. Uh, sometimes skin tags are not skin tags. And this is a kid, so if you were to ask me, how many of you have patients with basal cell nevus syndrome? A few, okay? Fairly rare diagnosis. Again, uh, in kids, how it may present is different, and the reason I'm bringing it out is I don't see that much basal cell nevus syndrome. But for some reason, the five or six kids that I have all presented the same way. They all had medulloblastoma. Then later they were sent to my clinic for these skin lesions on their neck. Never had been diagnosed with basal cell nevus syndrome at that time. And then you can see these tiny spots on their necks right in here, which actually represent these, look like skin tags, but actually represent pigmented basal cell carcinoma. So there's these acrocordon or skin tag lesion-like presentation in kids of that. And I think another thing is important is that it's accelerated by radiation, which they may have their medulloblastoma treated by, and it's also accelerated by growth hormone, which several of these kids have to go on because they have stunted growth. So the growth hormone feeds these lesions and they, they multiply. This kid, we just did little small miniature curette scrapes of it, and he did very well. So it's a rare disease, but if you do see it, just remember some kids, if you see it really, really young, they may present with these skin lesion-like areas. So thanks for your attention. We covered skin and brain, neurocutaneous. I separated it by color. You can do it your own way. Connected tissue disease. Don't depend on the physical, I mean, the, the, the history always. If your exam tells you to do the workup, do it. GI associations, and then some of these that are pseudo-malignancy. Again, thank you for your time, and I hope to come back again soon. Question, could you comment on the, the incidence of interstitial lung disease in children with dermatomyositis and also your recommendations for screening for that? Yeah, I know I could just tell you what the pediatric rheumatologists, uh, do you talk about for interstitial lung disease? Yeah, I, I think they have a protocol there and I, can, I don't want to misquote it, but I want to say they do, uh, they do PFTs and they do them like once a year maybe is all they, they do for their screening on those particular patients. And then sometimes they do a little bit of the swallowing studies, sometimes on those, uh, on those same patients, and they make sure they don't have any reflux. But I don't think they do much more than that, as far as I know. Thank you for your time. With dermatitis herpetiformis in children who are, have no GI symptoms, would you recommend a GI consult? I will sometimes to try to get them and convince them to do a gluten-free diet, you know, okay. for, for those patients. Okay. I, do, I, some, I sometimes do do that. You say they have no GI symptoms, but they have DH on the skin. Correct. Yeah, I still send them there because I try to get them on a gluten-free diet. But you know what I end up doing more than sending them to GIs? I send them to the nutritionist that goes through at the GI clinic that we have at the Children's Hospital and goes through all the things that are gluten-free and tries to help them with their diet. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, thank you again.